Paul tells us that all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. So we have to assume that these chapters, no matter how uh, difficult they may appear at first reading, are profitable to us. Uh, here and there throughout the, uh, the chapters, there are little, little pictures, little vignettes, cameos, that enliven our reading. Chris mentioned a couple of them last week. Uh, Caleb, that crusty old curmudgeon who, uh, uh, instead of retiring on the Mediterranean coast, wanted to go for the highlands. He wanted the high country. Uh, Give me the place of the Anakim, he said. Perhaps I'll drive them out. He wasn't sure that he could do it. Uh, he didn't. Uh, he might die in the in in process, but by faith he would die trying. He was not one of those men who believes that the chief end of man is retirement. And uh, then a bit later, uh, you run into these five daughters of Zelophehad. I'm dying someday to preach a sermon on the five daughters of of Zelophehad. Their father had had been part of the generation that died in the wilderness who accepted the report of the cynical spies and turned back and uh, it was because of his unbelief, as, as well as the un- unbelief of this entire generation, that Israel's entrance into the land was, was delayed for 40 years. And these women said, we're not going to have any truck with that, un- that kind of unbelief. Give us our inheritance uh, with our brothers. They recognized what Peter uh, uh, tells us in his epistle, that women are joint heirs with their men. They are not disciplettes. They are not subsets of, of men. Uh, they can be grown-up disciples and receive all that God has uh, in mind for his people. And then the third uh, little picture that we come across is in chapter 20, the story of the cities of refuge. Let's, uh, let's read it together. Joshua 20, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there. And they shall become your uh, refuge from the avenger of blood. And he shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city. And they shall take him in. Take him into the city to them and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. Now, if the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the manslayer shall return to his own city and to his own house, to the city from which he fled. So they set apart Kedesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they designated Bezer in the wilderness, on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth. In, in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the appointed cities for all the sons of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them, that whoever kills any person unintentionally may flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stands before the congregation. 
If you would take out uh, your bulletin and look on the, the front of the bulletin, you'll see a very small map with uh, microscopic uh, place names on it. Uh, it's very hard to see these cities of refuge, but you'll notice there are three in what we would call Transjordan today, the area to the east of Jordan, in what is Jordan proper these days, the uh, state of Jordan. Golan in the north, they don't know the exact location of the city, but uh, the Golan Heights take their name from that, uh, that city. Ramoth Gilead, about 20 miles south, just under the H in Manasseh. And then farther south, just above Reuben, in Reuben's territory, Bezer. And then in the other side of Jordan, in uh, Canaan proper, Kedesh, way up uh, in the north, just uh, adjacent to the I in Naphtali, uh, that city of refuge was uh, assigned to the tribe, of, the tribe of Naphtali. About 70 miles south, just below the A in Manasseh, Shechem, or Shechem as we sometimes call it. And then about 50 miles uh, to the south, Hebron. Uh, Joshua 20 is not the first place the cities of refuge occur in the Old Testament. Back in chapter 20 of Exodus, when the law is given, in chapter 21, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, is amplified, and uh, Moses points out that that law has to do with illegal taking of life, premeditated murder, what we would call today first-degree murder. But uh, if someone is guilty of manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, if they accidentally kill, kill someone or kill someone without malice, uh, without premeditation, then he says, I will prepare a place for you. doesn't specify where those places are or how many, but there's simply an ambiguous reference to a place that uh, God would assign in Israel's future. Then in, in Numbers 35, there's a further elaboration of this idea of, of the six cities of refuge. Their names are not given, but we're told that there will be six. And uh, certain laws having to do with what constitutes murder and what constitutes manslaughter are spelled out, so there, there's no question about that particular issue. Uh, and then in, in Deuteronomy 4, we're told that uh, Moses, who was the commander-in-chief of Israel's forces in Transjordan, in, that, in the first encounters they had with the Canaanites in that part of, of the Promised Land, Moses designated the three cities uh, to the east of Jordan as cities of refuge, and there would be three more, he says. And then a little, a little bit later in Deuteronomy 19, we're told that there will be three and perhaps even more if you need them in the, in the land of Canaan. So the, uh, there's quite a bit of information that leads up to uh, chapter 20. The idea is that this is a sanctuary for someone who takes a human life without premeditation. Now, this idea of blood revenge may uh, uh, trouble you. Uh, it does most people. I think the first time they read it sounds very savage and primitive. But this is the sort of thing that uh, was true in the ancient uh, world, particularly in the ancient Near East. Uh, it's the sort of thing that the missionaries discovered when they came uh, to the islands of Hawaii. Richardson mentions the same practice in um, eternity in their hearts, uh, found in many pagan, what we would call pagan nations, who do not have a strong central government. Actually, it seems pagan, but it may be truer to the truth than, than the, our behavior in so-called civilized nations because at least in those primitive cultures, they recognize the value of a human life. Uh, human life is, uh, is a tremendously valuable commodity. It is, in fact, of infinite value. No amount of money will pay for a human life. 
In Numbers 35, we're told that uh, a murderer could not ransom his life by paying a fine. There isn't enough money in the world to pay for one human life. And furthermore, there isn't enough time in the world to spend paying for one human life, even if you spend your whole lifetime. That's a finite period of time. So that from the standpoint of the Old Testament and uh, in the understanding of many of these primitive people, a life could only be paid for by a life. The only other element in the world that is worth a human life is another human life. You've, You've often heard it said that capital punishment is dehumanizing and and uh, we devalue human life, but I think it really works the other way around. What we're saying, if we don't believe in capital punishment, we're saying that a human life is worth seven years, or a human life is worth $100,000, or a human worth is, life is worth 20 years. But from the standpoint of Scripture, because human beings are created in the image of God, that life has infinite value, and it can only be paid for by another human life. So the practice in these primitive cultures where there was not a centralized government was, was this. If uh, someone assaulted someone in your tribe, in your family, and took their life, then the nearest relative, male relative, would seek the life of the murderer. It would track him down or her down and take her life. And that person was called the avenger of blood. Uh, interestingly enough, the word that's used for that person is the same word that's used for the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth, a goel. In other words, that that person exacts payment for the life of his or her relative. His relative, actually, because it was always the male who uh, sought the life of, of the murderer. So that payment was uh, was exacted. Now, there's always the problem of, of abuses in this system because if you accidentally kill someone, you still had the avenger of blood on your trail. And it could be what we would call justifiable homicide or unpremeditated uh, uh, homicide, uh, manslaughter, uh, accidental death, uh, those sorts of things. And uh, you could be tracked down and killed when really you did not mean to take a life. There was no malice, a forethought. There was no, no premeditation. So in the wisdom of God, these cities of sanctuary, of sanctuary were set up where the, uh, for any person who had taken a human life could flee for, for refuge. Now, let's set up a, a sort of hypothetical situation. Let's suppose you're an Israelite. You're out hunting with a friend. Uh, you fall down. Your bow goes off uh, by accident, and you uh, shoot your, your brother, and he goes down, your friend. You go back and report to the family, and uh, you, you know that, that the nearest relative uh, is a man who is going to track you down, and so you go home as quickly as possible, and your wife packs you a lunch, puts a few peanut butter sandwiches in a package and you throw it in your pack and a thermos of coffee and you put on your Adidas and you uh, head for the high country. Uh, That may even, uh, actually it's not, but it could very well be the origin of that expression because if you noticed, all of these cities of refuge were in the highlands. They were in the mountain country, so you headed for the hills, literally. You picked them up and laid them down. And uh, though these cities were, were scattered out through the land of Canaan, they might be 20, 30 miles away. It could be as much as, uh, as, as 40 miles uh, away from any location. So it would take you a couple of days to get there. Uh, people were in better shape back then. They walked more. They, they could probably cover 20 miles a day. Even I think I could probably cover a great deal more than that if, if someone was hot on my trail. 
And uh, this fellow would be right behind you, perhaps minutes behind you, and you'd be uh, headed for your city of refuge. You know, it's interesting. Several things were said about these cities. One is that the roads had to be kept clear. They maintained the roads. And secondly, uh, there, there were signs. Hamiklat, which is the word for a city of refuge, place of refuge, would be carved into the signs. And as you ran, uh, you could see which direction the signs uh, pointed. They were placed at uh, crossroads where you might lose your way. They were placed at uh, uh, parts of the journey where you might uh, get lost so that you could easily find the city. Scripture tells us that. The Talmud, which, as I've told you before, is a commentary on the law uh, composed by the, by the rabbis uh, from very early times, says that there are also runners stationed along the road, ex-felons. They were people who themselves had been guilty of taking a human life, had been redeemed through the death of the high priest. We'll talk about that in a moment. And they were out on the highways waiting for people who were, who were fugitives, who were fleeing from the avenger of, of blood. And uh, they were there to run along with you as you ran to the city and to give you directions. Uh, perhaps they were located at the top of uh, a long hill with Gatorade and uh, water to pour over your head and whatever. And, and uh, they, would, they would aid you in, in your journey until you reached, reached the city. When you got to the city, you stood outside the gates and you asked for sanctuary. And they had to let you in. They could not turn you away. You asked for protection there and uh, they opened the gates to you and they they brought you in and we're told that uh, they gave you a place gave you a place to live took care of your uh, your needs you were probably breathless and worn out and hadn't eaten well on the journey perhaps and they'd feed you and give you a time to rest and and heal they wouldn't expect you to do anything and as far as we know all the years that they lived in the city they didn't have to support themselves they were supported by the community in, in the city of refuge. And after a time, a delegation would come from the tribe, uh, the tribe to which the victim belonged, the man that, whose life you had taken, and you would stand before a jury of your peers. The Old Testament is very clear there had to be two or more. It couldn't be a private thing. It's not a personal vendetta. And there were, it was, these witnesses were there to objectify the whole matter. And they would give witness against you, and others would give witness for you. And if it was determined that you were guilty of murder, then you would, be, you would be taken outside and your life would be taken because a life demands a life. But if you were guilty of manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, or if you killed without premeditation or without malice, and all of this is spelled out on your own time, you can read Numbers 35 and see how, how precise the law is. Uh, if, if you were guilty of manslaughter, then you were protected in the city from the avenger of blood. He could not take your life. Uh, you were limited. The cities of refuge had precise environs, uh, an area of, of about a thousand cubits outside the city was, was specified as the city limits. It's about 1,500 feet. So you couldn't get very far from the city or very far from home. So in a sense, you were in exile. You were in prison. You had to pay because you still had sinned. You had taken an infinitely valuable human life, and you were in exile until the high priest died, interestingly enough. The Talmud, again, makes it uh, very clear that, the, that when the high priest died, the sins of the, of the killer were expiated. It's put very precisely. It is not the exile that expiates. It's the death of the high priest that takes away the guilt 
of the sinner. Very interesting. Long before our high priest came and expiated, propitiated our guilt, satisfied God on our behalf, the Jews knew that there was something very significant about this uh, symbolic uh, uh, salvation here. It was only after the high priest's death that uh, the killer was, was free. He could go scot-free. He could leave then. Uh, and he could help others. He could be a runner. He could go back to his family and, and to his friends. He could serve elsewhere uh, within, within the, uh, uh, the community. Uh, I uh, pondered over this this last week, and the more I thought about it, the more sense this passage made to me. You, you say, well, are there any cities of refuge today? Sure. Yeah, there's a city of refuge. It's God himself. God himself is our refuge. The Old Testament says that. The passage that's on the front of your, your bulletin is from, uh, from Moses' lips. Moses was a, a rootless man. He had no home. He'd been exiled from his home when he was driven into the wilderness. He spent 40 years in Midian. He spent 40 years uh, out in the wilderness, finally died away from, from, the land of, from the promised land. He was always misunderstood. His wife apparently left him. Pretty early in the game, Zipporah never understood him, and she went back to her father Midian at some point. And, and he was always under the gun, always being misunderstood, and people were always on his case. And, and that's, you know, very often that happens to uh, people like Moses that are, that are out there up front. And uh, it was tough. It was hard for Moses. And he, he wrote this, this little psalm in Deuteronomy 13. The eternal God, he said, is my refuge. That's the one to whom I, I run in time of need. He had a little tent out back, we know, and when things got tough, he'd, he'd run to that little tent and he'd get down on his knees and he'd say, God, you see see what they're saying about me? You see what they're doing? You, you know, you see. You're going to take care of that, aren't you? That was his refuge. The eternal God is my refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. When you have to flee, that's the place to flee, is right into God's arms. He is our refuge. And I, I fully believe that the New Testament writers understood that principle. Actually, the, the, I think the author of the book of, of Hebrews specifies that our Lord Jesus is our refuge and is the counterpart of the, of the cities of refuge. It's in Hebrews 6. I would encourage you to read that, that chapter this afternoon. It's a chapter about God's faithfulness. As you know, Hebrews is written by someone, we don't know who wrote the book, but he wrote it to, he was a Jew, writing to to Christian Jews who were considering abandoning their Christianity because things were getting very difficult for them. And the argument of the author is, don't don't go back to Judaism because there's nothing there for you any longer. There's no other alternative. The, the, The only refuge, the only suitable refuge is our Lord Jesus. He's our great high priest. And he says, think for a moment of what God promised to Abraham. And he, he reminds them of God's great promise and oath. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless all of your seed. Now that's us. We are the seed of Abraham by faith, though we may not be ethnically Jewish. We are Jewish in the sense that we are the seed of Abraham. We are the, the new Israel as the church. And uh, we, uh, because we're in Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, we have all that, that our Lord has. We're safe and, 
and secure in him. And God said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to bless all your seed. And then he says, blessing, I will bless. In other words, he promises, and then he puts an oath on top of the promise. And uh, the author of, of Hebrews says, by two immutable, irrevocable, unrustable uh, facts, the, the fact of the, of the promise and the oath, he says, you're safe, you're secure, your salvation is guarded to the end. You can't sin too much to, to outsend the grace of God. You can't be so lost that God can't find, find you. You're safe and secure. Therefore, he says, let's run for refuge to the great high priest. Let's run for refuge to the great high priest. And the word he uses for refuge is the word that's used in the Greek translation, the, the translation that the author of Hebrews had in front of him when he wrote that book. We call it the Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Old Testament translates refuge here. It's a very unusual word, this hamiklat here in, 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 in uh, chapter 20. is only used of, of the cities of refuge here in Numbers 35. And the author of Hebrews picks up the word that the Greek translation uses for the word for refuge here. And that, that's what he quotes in, in Hebrews 6. So when, the, when, the, when times get tough, when there's no other place to go, when you've run out of alternatives, you can always flee to Christ. As a friend of mine put it out, he, he said, I came to Christ by the process of elimination. Nothing else worked. I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, and finally I fled for refuge to Christ. Now, that's what, uh, that's what the church is, just a bunch of people that have fled for refuge to Christ. That's all we are. We're not anybody special. We're not holier than anyone else. We, we, we've just fled to Christ for refuge. And it struck me as I was thinking about that, that that's what the church is, because we have... We fled to him and we're centered around him. The church is a city of refuge. That's what we ought to be. When people come from the outside and they, they knock on our doors, this is a place to which they can run. We, we have to take them in. As Robert Frost said, we're family. The family can't turn you out. The family has to take you in. It doesn't make any difference what they've done. We, we can't scrutinize their lives. We have, we have to say, come on in, come on in. This is a safe place, a sanctuary for, for everyone who, who bears a burden of, of guilt. Come and hear about the high priest who, who sets us free. Uh, when I was a, uh, in kindergarten, that's back shortly before the earth's crust began to cool, uh, <laughs> I, uh, our house was just up the street from the school, Armstrong School, and uh, there was this long uh, alleyway that led to the to the school. This was back in an era when you could walk down alleyways without being mugged. And uh, I walked down the alley and across the street, and there was a park there and then the school. And because it was perfectly safe to walk down that alley, my parents let me walk to kindergarten every every day. And so I walked down there. Coming home one day, came through the park, saw a bunch of gladiolas growing in a flower bed, and I thought, my, my mother would sure like those. So I got out my little pocket knife and cut off about a dozen gladiolas and stuck them under my arm. Started down the alley, and a bunch of big kids uh, intercepted me. I think they were first graders. And uh, 
They said, we saw you do that. We saw you do that. We're going to call the cops. That's stealing. You're in big trouble. They're going to come get you in their patrol car and take you to reform school, and you'll be there forever. And, uh, boy, I was scared out of my wits. And where, where do you think I would go at a time? I wouldn't go back to school. I wasn't going to go over to the first grader's house. I ran home because I knew I was safe there. And I ran in the kitchen. My mother was gone that particular day. You know, it's funny how you remember things. The traumas of your childhood are the things you remember. And this was a major trauma to me. I ran into the kitchen, and uh, we had a, a, a black maid. Her name was Ann. I've mentioned her before in some of my sermons. Just a wonderful Christian woman. I can still remember uh, singing uh, Negro spirituals and hymns in the kitchen. I went to a party one time, and one of the icebreakers was, uh, tell us what the center of warmth was in your home. And I could think of two or three, but that's the one that popped into my mind was the kitchen. Because I can remember sitting on our tile floor in the kitchen, listening to Ann sing hymns and talk to me about her her faith. And uh, uh, she was sort of a second mother to me. And I ran into that kitchen, and I told her everything had happened. And she said, oh, it's okay, Bubba. That's what you call me, Bubba. (laughs) Don't you ever use that. And uh, she had me sit down at the kitchen table, and I don't remember what she said. I, I imagine she said, uh, you know, what you did was wrong, and you, you can't put them back, but don't ever do that again. But but I knew I was safe, and I told her the police were going to come get me and take me off to the penitentiary, and I'd probably spend the rest of my life in jail. And, and she took me very seriously, and she said, no, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I knew I was safe there, you see. And that's what the church ought to be. Uh, Nancy Edwards, uh, this last week when we were talking about this passage, commented on the fact that, that when you looked around in the city of refuge, if you were there, everyone there was a, was a convicted fella, <laughs> just about, you know. We're all in the same boat. All of us had taken a life at, at some point. We're all just a bunch of sinners. And uh, we, we, could, we could be honest with one another. We didn't need to pretend or hide or try to shield our sin. We could talk about it honestly and and know that we were accepted and that a fellow or a girl could be could be loved there. That's so important. Uh, I've, I've been in AA meetings when people would stand up, men would stand up and say, my name is Bob. Hi. I'd say, my name is Bob. I'm an alcoholic. And someone else would stand up and say, uh, hi, my name is, is uh, Sue. I'm a love junkie. And someone else would stand up and say, Hi, my name is Bill. I'm a drug addict. And it was okay. It's all right. Some of those people had been clean and sober and and dry for months. Some were struggling and falling off the wagon. But uh, everybody was working on this thing together. And everybody recognized that this was a problem. That something had to be done about it. But but they weren't trying to cover it over or shield it. They could be honest and open and transparent about it and know that a, that a person could be loved there. It's okay to talk about those things. There was support and encouragement and, and love there. And that's what the church ought to be. That's what we ought to be here at Cole Community Church. And our growth groups, women's groups, and the men's group, and the little ad hoc small groups, that are, your Friday morning group and whatnot. That's, that's what it is. It's a city of refuge where you can come in and say, Hi, my, my name is Sue. I'm an adulteress. Hi, my name is John. I'm a gossip. Uh, hi, I'm I'm Bill. I, I I'm I'm not loving my wife the way I should, and and a person can be loved there, accepted there, and and helped. It's not that we justify sin. It's not that we don't want to deal with it, but it's that we know we can get help. 
that no one turns us away, that no one rejects us because we don't have it all together. We're, we're all in this together, sinners anonymous, just uh, working together by God's grace to grow up to, uh, to the image of his likeness and his loveliness. Now, uh, let's take a few minutes and talk about chapter 21. Got all this shrubbery up here that I can't see through. <laughs> Somebody got a pair of hedge clippers? <laughs> chapter 21. I'm not going to read this chapter. You'd all fall asleep if I did. It's a list again of names of places, cities for the priests and Levites, 48 cities and their suburbs. According to the census and numbers, there were some 23,000 Levites that were scattered. Uh, throughout the land of Canaan. Uh, I should point out the structure of the chapter because it's a a little bit difficult to uh, understand. The first eight verses simply mention the three tribes of of Levites, uh, the Kohathites in verse 4, the Gershonites in verse 6, and the sons of Merari in verse 7. The sons of Aaron were Kohathites. They were the priests. So the Kohathites were both Levites and priests. They were descendants of Levi. But there was a segment of the Kohathites who were, who were priests, called priests, and they served around the sanctuary. It was their responsibility to uh, write uh, the psalms and the hymns and to direct the worship and to lead people to God, uh, get their, their gaze, their uh, their devotion uh, directed toward the Lord. And then the other members of the uh, of that particular unit of Kohath, Gershon, and Merari were simply Levites who were ministers to God. And then the cities which were given to them follow in verses 9 through uh, the end of the chapter through verse 45. And uh, the particular tribes that uh, contained these cities, there would be three or four of, of these cities in each of the tribes, a total of 48 cities, six of which were cities of sanctuary. So the Levites were located uh, within, the, uh, uh, within the cities of, of refuge. Uh, in just the moment or two that I have, I want to tell you, first of all, what priests did. The function of a priest was to stand between God and man. They mediated between God and man. They, uh, they directed the worship. By worship, we mean they trained people's eyes on God. They taught them to attribute worth to God. They taught them to love God and to be devoted to him. They taught them that help comes only for God. They recognized that no human being can give help. All we can do is to lead people to the Lord who himself gives help. So they functioned in worship. They stood between God and man in that sense that they, in that they taught the people to get their eyes on God. That's what worship is. Secondly, they taught the scriptures, which means they took God's word and communicated it to the people. They were Bible teachers, in other words. They imparted truth. And I'm sure there were all levels of impartation. There were some who were quite gifted at teaching. There were some who were perhaps neophytes and just coming along, didn't know as much as the others, but all could impart truth. The third thing they did was to intercede for the people. Again, they stood between. The people had needs, so the priests interceded for them. 
So they befriended the people and they prayed for them and they taught them the scriptures and they directed their eyes toward God. In other words, they ministered to them, uh, as we would use that word ministry uh, today. Now, uh, the New Testament says that all of us, all of us, every one of you who knows Jesus Christ as Savior is a priest. No distinction between priests and priestesses. You're just all priests. That's all. With all the prerogatives of the priesthood. You can help people to worship. You can impart truth. And you can pray for people. That's, that's what it means to minister. Now, that's not a notion that shows up just in the New Testament. That was anticipated in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 61, God said to his people, They that shall be of you... The generation that comes from you shall build the old waste places. They shall uh, restore the, the broken foundations. They shall be called the repairs of the breach, the restorer of paths to, to dwell in. That's what a priest does. And then he go, uh, God goes on to say that you shall all, he's talking about all of Israel, you shall all be called priests of the Lord. You shall all be called ministers of God. Peter picks that up in his little epistle, and he says, you're a nation of priests. He says that to the church. That's all of you and all the rest of the church throughout the world. We are all priests. Now, you may not wear a clergy collar, and you may not get any clergy benefits, uh, but you are all clergy in that sense. There's no distinction in the Bible between paid professional priests and the rest of the priesthood. We are all priests called upon to minister. Now keep that keep that in mind. The second thing that I notice about uh, these Levites is that they were scattered all over the place. That's because they had no right to an inheritance. They never possessed any land. They held everything loosely. They weren't permitted to put down any roots. They always. Uh, perhaps felt a little bit transient. They never had a piece of real estate they could call their own. They never had a title deed to a piece of land in their pocket. Uh, they, they, were, they were scattered, and they lived among all the other people, ministering wherever, wherever they met needs. Now, interestingly enough, that scattering was a judgment initially. It was a punishment. Let me tell you how that came about. I don't have time to look at the passage. You can read it on your own. It's in Genesis 49. Parallel passage, or the accompanying passage is in Genesis 34. Here's what happened. Simeon and Levi were the second, or number two, and number three sons of Jacob. His first son was Reuben, firstborn. Simeon and Levi were the second and third. They were very violent men. And uh, chapter 34 of Genesis tells about a massacre that they were responsible for. They massacred a whole community for no good reason. And later, when Jacob was predicting their future, this is not a curse, it was simply a prediction. He says, you, you two guys, Simeon and Levi, Levi, you guys are violent men, he says. Your mattocks, that is, your, your implements of farming became implements of warfare. And he says, God's going to scatter you throughout Israel. Well, now, Simeon actually disappeared. Simeon was a little tribe. Uh, never mounted anything. Finally, he just was absorbed into the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin and just ceased to exist after a while. Levi, on the other hand, seemed to turn back to God. There are indications that Levi himself repented of his violence and, and his descendants were, were involved in, various, in some very significant events that indicated they had a heart for God. 
And so though they, uh, the judgment stood and they were scattered, that judgment became a blessing. They, they became, their, their ministry was reinforced. They became even more influential as a result of that judgment. And what occurred to me are the, the, the men, for example, that I know who, because of sin in their life, have lost their businesses, they've lost their health, they've lost their families, their children. Uh, they've destroyed themselves, basically, because of, of evil uh, behavior. And they come to their senses, and uh, they turn back to God. And though they may never recover what they had before, they may never have a family, they may never have the wealth or the privileges they had before, that judgment becomes a blessing. It's an example, again, of what we saw before with Achan. The valley of Achor becomes a door of hope. And today, some of the men that I know that have the greatest influence on others around them are men who have been stripped of everything. But that judgment has become a blessing. They know God in a way they could not have known him before. And I can't help, as I look out over this, this group, see men of whom I know that's, that's true. The, the, the other thing I'd like to say about these Levites uh, is the, if, if you take this, uh, take this map and you lay it alongside a map of the territory that, that Israel had conquered up to this point, every one of these Levitical cities, uh, are, they, they are either in an area yet unconquered or right on the borders of unconquered territory. And that strikes me as very significant. Because who are the people that need to be ministered to? Well, that's the people that are out on the edge, the people that are often getting beat up and and battered and life is treating them harshly and things are really tough. And, And the Levites were right there where they could minister, where they could impart the truth and where they could pray for them and where they could get their attention Back on the Lord. I think of these dear men that I know that are back in the back country trying to pastor churches where they, they often are overlooked and underpaid and underappreciated and undersupported. And, and, uh, and, and these are the kind of people I think we need to be getting help to. And I look to, at the people around this congregation who are right out there on the edge, whose lives are, are, are valuable. These are the people that often are very vulnerable. And they're taking the shots, the hard shots, and, and they need the ministry of the rest of the body to, uh, to keep them going. Uh, the third thing I would like to say, and, and this is the final point, is that th- these uh, cities were distributed by lot. Uh, verse 4, then the lot came out for the families of Kohath, and we're told that they received 13 cities by lot. And what struck me as I read through this, this chapter is verse 9. They gave these cities, which you heard mentioned, by name from the tribe of the sons of Judah and from the tribe of the sons of Simeon. They were for the sons of Aaron. And they were given the cities of Kiriath Arba, which is uh, Hebron. And they were given, uh, verse 14, Jatir and Eshtemoah and Holon and Deborah. And if you look at a map, you'll see that all those cities are located right around Jerusalem. They're all in Judah. Now, that's interesting, because the sons of Aaron were the priests. They were the people that served at Jerusalem in the temple. And by chance, by lot, they happened to, the cities that were designated for them just happened to be around Jerusalem. 
Now think for a minute. There was no temple in Jerusalem. Jebus, the city of Jerusalem, was in the hands of the Canaanites. The tabernacle was at Shiloh or at Gilgal. We don't know which. Somewhere up in Galilee. There wasn't any sanctuary in Jerusalem. But just by chance, they ended up in Judah in proximity to the city of Jerusalem where they would end up serving. And it's just another illustration again to me of the principle that that I've referred to time and time again. That there are no maverick molecules. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by chance. It's God who puts you in the right place at the right time even if you don't see any purpose for it right now. Even if your position is distressing to you. Even if you discover that tomorrow morning you're... Your company is moving you to uh, Kansas City or to San Francisco or, or, or you know, wherever, wherever he puts you. That's the place that God wants you to serve. He has the right to do that. He disposes of his people as he will. And we say, oh, it's just chance. A company happened to uh, draw my name out of a hat. No, 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 no. There are no accidents. Where you are is where God wants you to be. Bloom where you're planted. Say, be a minister. Be a priest. I, I I can't help but go back to this picture of of, of a runner. I, I think that's such a beautiful picture of ministry and in particular evangelism. Evangelism is not grabbing people by the lapels and saying, hey, you sinner, why don't you get, get your life squared away? Uh, it's just one ex-felon uh, running alongside another one in desperate need and saying, I, I know a fountain. Where sins are washed away. I know a place where night is turned today. Burdens are lifted. Blind eyes made to see. There's a wonder working power in the blood of Calvary. That's what evangelism is. It's running along with people. Helping them on uh, to God. Wherever God stations you. You might have some uh, out of the way place where nobody ever notices you. Nobody ever applauds what you're doing, and you have to wait a long time at the crossroads waiting for someone to run. But that's the place that God has, has assigned to you. I, I thought uh, all week of an illustration. What's a good illustration of someone who blooms where they're planted and someone who ministers despite the, uh, the hard times and, and uh, someone who sees that their responsibility is to uh, carry out God's plan to, to bring, bring about salvation? And I missed it for the longest time. And yesterday I thought of the obvious illustration. And the one that I should have thought of from the very beginning is Mary. If I were to ask for a show of hands, who of you women would like to be Mary? I think most of you would probably raise your hands. Who would not want the privilege of bringing the Christ child into the world? But have you ever stopped to think what that young woman went through? She was very young. Junior high age, 15, 16 years of age probably. Angel appeared to her and said, Mary, you're highly favored. That's the sort of uh, salutation that angels use when they have some big assignment for you. And that's why she uh, that's why she was amazed at what the angel said. So she was astonished. Unknown, over, you know, just, just a peasant girl. And uh, Angel said, you're going to have a child and that's God's child and you're going to that child will be born, and that's the Savior of the world. And, and Mary said, how can it happen? I'm, I'm not, I've never known a man. And the angel explains, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. That which is born of you is born of God. 
You know what Mary did? She took off. She ran away from home a hundred miles to find her cousin so she could talk this over with her. She was separated from Joseph for three months. She came back and she said, Joseph, I'm pregnant. He knew he wasn't the father. And he rejected her. He wanted to put her away. He wanted to divorce her, even though he was a good man, Matthew tells us. He wanted to do it quietly. He wanted to get away from this thing. Her parents didn't understand. No one understood. All of her life, she bore the stigma of having born Jesus out of wedlock. Anybody in Nazareth could count up to nine. And when she got married, they knew that uh, when that baby came six months later, uh, that uh, wasn't quite right. Word got around. Rumors started to spread. And she lived under that shadow all of her life. One of the most interesting accounts. I've mentioned this before. Jesus was debating with the Pharisees. He was besting them in argument. Pharisees turn on him, get real nasty and personal, and they say, well, at least we're not born of fornication. The implication is you are. And she bore that stigma to the end of her life, but she bore it faithfully. And she brought the God-man into the world who brought salvation to us. She bloomed right where she was planted. Now, there's a city of refuge there to which we can run I hope that's what this church becomes. I hope we are always a city of refuge to people in need. And I hope that God will use us as his priests and Levites to draw people into that city. Let's pray. Lord, Evie's words are well taken this morning. In all the hustle and bustle of this Christmas season when we're thinking about everything under the sun except the Savior. We ask that you would would remind us again of the, of the task that you've given to us. Remind us again of the Savior who's in our midst and enable us to draw near to him. And help us, Lord, as a result of our adoration and worship of him to be useful in your hands, to draw others into this safe place. May we as a church always be that sanctuary for sinners. May we always see ourselves in that light. Enable us to be constantly honest with ourselves and with one another. And may we be characterized by the kind of love that characterized these sanctuaries, acceptance, never rejection, always acceptance and love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.